Shortly before his death in 1963, C.S. Lewis published The Four Loves, and in that he examined the four Greek words for love that appear in the New Testament particularly. In the chapter on friendship, Lewis writes these words, friendship arises more out of a companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. Whatever its cause, writes Lewis, friendship must be about something. He goes on to say elsewhere in that chapter that friendship is that moment when you discover someone who has a common interest or has shared a common experience. You sort of look at one another and say, you too? And in that moment, a bond is formed. The fellowship is created. And that given that friendship is about something, it is safe to say that our friendship, our fellowship as Christians is the fruit of a shared and mutual faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that the, the quality and the depth, and I dare say even the intimacy of that friendship and fellowship is strengthened when we meet someone who not only shares our faith, but has either gone through or is going through an experience that we ourselves have gone through at some time or another. So, for example, when we meet someone with whom we share a common experience, their counsel, whether it is through their physical presence, whether it is through a word of encouragement or exhortation or even of correction, their counsel has gravitas. It has credibility that is born out of the experience that they share and we share with them because they also have learned to trust Christ through very challenging times. So, for example, some of us here are, are going through unemployment and are wondering when and if God will provide another job. And so if someone comes alongside you and says to you, well, you know, Paul says in Romans 8, all things work together for good for those who love God. You would think, well, that's nice. That's, I can put that on a T-shirt and I can wear that around and look at it in the mirror. But if someone comes to you who themselves has been unemployed for months and then found a job and can tell you, you know, when I was praying, when I was struggling, when I was wondering whether or not God would give me another job to provide an opportunity for me to provide for myself or provide for myself and my family. I want you to know that this word from Romans 8, 28, it sustained me. And then suddenly you have a connection with that person because they know what you're going through. They know the anxiety. They know the panic. They know the concern. They know the struggle. But they also know the peace that comes from trusting God. Or if you have someone who is uh, struggling with an illness that requires a surgery, and they come up to you and, and someone says, well, you know, Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you uphold you with my mighty right hand. If they haven't had that illness or if they haven't gone through surgery, their words don't have the same weight as someone who has gone through surgery, who in preparing and praying for that moment of going into the operating room says, you know, this is the word that the Lord gave to me. This is the word that I clung to going into the operatory and this is the word I clung to coming out of it. 
That has credibility. That has weight. Then lastly, you may have a situation where as a parent, you are praying with great concern for the salvation of your child. And someone comes along and says, well, you know, Paul says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. If a parent comes up to another parent and says, I was concerned about my teenage daughter or my teenage son because of the people that they were hanging around with, and I was worried that they would turn from their faith or not come to their faith at all. This is a prayer that I prayed for them. And suddenly you as a parent going through that similar experience, you are comforted and you are encouraged by that. When Jill and I lived in Ohio, we... we became friends, we still are, with a, a couple whose son was tragically killed in an automobile accident. And we offered them comfort, we offered them presence, we offered them counsel and encouragement. But there was another family in our church there whose daughter had died at a very young age from cancer. And that couple was able to reach and counsel and comfort the couple that lost their son in a way that we could not because their words had a gravitas, a credibility, a weight. Now, why do I mention all of this? I mention this because the central theme of 1 Peter seems to be that if you follow Jesus, you have eternal life. That is a given. But when you follow Jesus, you will experience trouble in this life. You will experience suffering in this life. But take heart, says Peter. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than it is for doing evil. Now, if, if Peter had stopped there, if that's all he said, we might take from it, well, gosh, Peter, that, thanks for that. Doesn't really help, but I'll put that on a pillow and remember it. But he doesn't stop there. It's not all he says. What he says is we know someone who knows what it means to suffer for doing good. We know someone who has suffered for doing good and yet continued to do good. We have a friend who has been tempted in all the ways that we are tempted and yet did not sin. We have a friend who knows how it feels to be forsaken by God so that God will never forsake us. We know Jesus, and we know Jesus suffered for doing good. More importantly, Jesus suffered for our good. He suffered for our salvation. And so when you come to this section, this last and final section of chapter 3, what Peter is seeking to do here in the words of uh, I. Howard Marshall in his commentary is that his main purpose is to encourage his readers to face persecution fearlessly and positively by showing them that their situation is comparable to that of Jesus who also had to suffer for doing good. And we define doing good as anything that is in conformity with God's will, that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ, and is to the benefit and blessing of our neighbor. 
And so the big idea for this last section of 1 Peter 3 is that Christ also suffered for doing good. And that as you read the text, we're going to see that the suffering of Christ is good news and it's bad news. And that the resurrection of Christ then guarantees our salvation and it solidifies his victory. So we'll take the first one first, obviously. Verses 18 to 20, the suffering of Christ is good news and bad news. First, the good news. The suffering of Christ brings joy, the joy of salvation, to those who trust him and obey his instruction. That's been the, the element, the, the, the theme, the basis from which Peter is working. From the very first lines of his letter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To an inheritance, he says, that can never perish, spoil, or fade, that is kept in heaven for you, who are protected through God's power for a revelation of Christ to be revealed at the last time. It's a rough paraphrase of verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1. Here in verse 18, the first part of it, Peter says, Christ also suffered once or once for all for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The first thing you notice that Peter says here is that Christ his suffering was for sins, our sins, not his. That he offered himself once for all time so that there's no longer any sacrifice needed for sin. So if he's writing to, to Jews, they would understand that under the Levitical system, sacrifice had to be made every day for sins. If, if there are pagans, if there are Greeks who worship the gods among his congregation, he is telling them that there is no longer any need for you to please the gods because the God of heaven and earth, the only God, the only true God, is now completely satisfied. His wrath and his justice had been fulfilled and satiated with the sacrifice and the offering of his son, Jesus Christ. This is the language, the theologians would tell us, this is the language of substitutionary atonement, that Christ dies as our substitute for our sins in our place, thereby making peace with God for us and with us. We heard this message on Good Friday in Isaiah 53, verse 5, where the prophet talks about that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds were healed. This is the good for which Christ suffered, is what Peter is saying. The good that Christ did was being a sinless offering for sin. And this suffering that he endured was, if you will, an unjust suffering. It was the, un, the, the righteous for the unrighteous. Paul says the same thing in Romans 5, 6 through 8, when he's talking about the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. He said, while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, someone might even dare to die. But God, he says, proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, who in their right mind, being a good just and truthful person dies for their enemies voluntarily, willingly, joyfully. Only one. 
the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he says he might bring us to God. The whole purpose of Christ dying is to bridge a gap that our sin had created. And so when Christ suffered for doing good, it was for our good and for God's glory that he might bring the two of us together, uniting us through his sacrifice, uniting us through his own life, death, and resurrection. Again, Isaiah had predicted this, Isaiah 53.11, speaking about Jesus by his knowledge, says the prophet. He, this is referring centuries before to Jesus, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear, he shall bear their iniquities. Again, it was for our sins that Christ died as our substitute. And then lastly, to emphasize the point once again, Christ suffered for our sins in order that he might bring us to God that he might unite us with him. And here Peter does something remarkable. Read the, old, read the New Testament. There's no other reference to Jesus bringing us to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But here Peter does something that is unheard of in the New Testament. He actually says Christ brings us to God. And he does, in doing this, he uses three metaphors that are very memorable in describing Jesus. That Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world the righteous for the unrighteous, that Jesus is our great high priest who put away sin through the sacrifices himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and that Jesus is the good shepherd who brings us to God, who leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, that he died indeed to bridge that gap. And now as our good shepherd, as our great high priest, as the Lamb of God, he leads us through enemy territory in order to bring us safely home. We don't always know how to walk through the territory, the circumstances through which God calls us to follow him. But Jesus knows the way. Sometimes the way that he leads us is difficult and frightening and challenging. I don't remember exactly the name of the children's story, but there is a children's story in which this little girl is trying to find a friend. And she is visited by, it's a children's story, it's a fairy story. She's visited by a, like a fairy godmother who gives her a string. And she says, whenever you are frightened, I want you to follow this string and it will lead you to me. It will lead you to your friend. And so one night the girl is awakened, she is frightened, and so she, she finds this string and she begins to follow. But rather than leading her into a place that's safe and secure, it takes her down and down and down into this dungeon where there are all sorts of goblins, and yet that's where the string is leading her. And she follows it all the way till she gets safe. Sometimes following God is like that, says Peter. Where why are you leading me through these deep waters? Why are you leading me through these dark and terrifying places? Read Psalm 88, read Psalm 39. And you see that the psalmist himself has experienced these troubling and disturbing times. Why lead me through this season of suffering? Why lead me through this season of trial? All for the purpose, Peter says, of making us more like Christ. So whether it's unemployment, whether it's illness, whether there's marital strife, whether it is anxiety, whether it is doubt, whether it is being bullied at work or at school, all of that is part of God's plan to lead us and to make us more like his own dear son. 
The suffering of Christ brings the joy of salvation to those who trust in him and obey his instruction. That is the good news. Now for the bad news. The suffering of Christ now means judgment for those who are disobedient. Peter goes on to say that Christ being put to death in the flesh but made alive in his spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, I'll say this. Verse 18 is fairly straightforward, fairly easy to interpret. Verses 19 to 20, that's a different story. They are two of the most challenging verses in all of, not just the New Testament, but in all of the Bible to interpret correctly. So I'll try to, my best to do that and to keep my comments brief. All right? Here we go. So the point of verse 18 is very straightforward. Because death did not destroy Jesus Christ, death will not destroy any Christian who suffers because of their faith in Christ. That's what Peter means when he says Jesus Christ was put to death in the flesh. It means that when he died for sin, he really died. He died as a whole person, body and spirit. He died in the flesh because in the New Testament, the flesh represents a sinful humanity that is in need of redemption, which is why God has to become incarnate in Christ. He has to bear the penalty for our sin in his body. But Peter says Jesus, though put to death in the flesh, was made alive in the spirit, the, the action by which God the Father raises him from the dead. Christ is made alive in the spirit because of his relationship with the Father. And so because of his relationship with the Father, by faith we now have a relationship with the Father. And just as God the Father did not abandon his Holy One to decay in the grave, he will not abandon we who are his beloved in Christ to the grave either. That as Christ was raised, so too will we be raised. We, we sung it in that wonderful song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. I like how Paul says it. And this is where I, it's, it's wonderful. Um, there's a, a principle in Scripture called, uh, in Bible study called Scripture Interpreting Scripture, where one part of the Bible can explain or help us understand another part. So Romans 8.11 helps us understand what Peter is talking about here. When Paul writes, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, in other words, if the spirit of God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who dwells in you. That's still part of the good news for those who have trusted in Christ. It's the bad news for those who have not, because this is not true of them. And that leads us to the challenging part of this text, which is verses 19 and 20, because how do we interpret them? Because Peter tells us that after Jesus was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, he does something. He went, he says, and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives, were brought safely through water. 
I know that the more astute among you may be fact-checking me even as I share this, and I encourage you to do that when you go home as well. Go to Bible Hub or Google this text and compare what I'm about to say because there are, there are several different ways of coming at this text, and I'm going to give you the, the one that I think and, and believe to be the, the, the best way to understand these verses. At the very least, when you come to the New Testament, when you see the word spirits, that phrase, that name refers to non-human spiritual beings. So at the very least, what verses 19 and 20 are saying is that they're describing a scene in which the resurrected Jesus announces judgment. That's the bad news upon the spirits who are in prison, sealing their fate because he has triumphed over sin and death and has secured forever the salvation of all those who trust in him and obey his instructions. In his uh, helpful commentary on this passage, I. Howard Marshall sort of breaks down these verses by asking a couple of different questions. When did Christ do this? Well, the consensus is that he did this after his resurrection in connection with his ascension to the right hand of God in heaven. But where did he go? The text doesn't say. All Peter tells us is that Christ went to the place where disobedient spirits are imprisoned. And there are two possible locations. We know from the Apostles' Creed, one of them. He goes down. Right? He descended into hell. He descends into Hades before his resurrection. Or he goes up into the heavens where there are spirits who are imprisoned. And in both places, in either scenario, he announces his victory and declares God's judgment. Those are the two of the better options, and of those two, option two is the best. In other words, the resurrected Jesus visited the prison of disobedient spirits located in the heavenly places. Why do I think that? Two reasons. There was a belief in Judaism that there were several levels of heaven. How do I know this? The Apostle Paul. Because in 2 Corinthians 12, in the midst of making a defense of his own ministry to the Corinthians, something which Paul does not want to do, but he says, you have driven me to it like a madman. In 2 Corinthians 12, 2, Paul, in talking about himself, says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, those of us who have studied the Galatians letter, nobody's talking about, a man in Christ 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. And he says, I saw things in which I cannot speak. Additionally, Outside the New Testament, many Jewish scholars at the time locate the place where evil powers are imprisoned until a final judgment is in one of those levels of heaven. But if you're still not convinced, I got, Romans, I got Revelation 12 for you. Because there, John sees Satan thrown down to earth along with his angels to make war against the church. That's Revelation 12, 9 and 17. And like those commercials you see at midnight for Gotham Steel cookware, but wait, there's more. <laughs> Ephesians 2.2. In describing our life before we came to faith in Christ, Paul says that we were all 
under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. But more. Ephesians 6.12, which I think seals the deal. Paul, in talking about wearing the armor of God, about the, the spiritual battle in which we are engaged, says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Where? In the heavenly places. Where is that? I don't know. But it's in the heavenly places. It's in a realm that is unseen to us, but yet we are surrounded by it. So where are these spirits? Or who are these spirits, rather? Again, fact check me, Google it. You're going to find a bunch of different interpretations. The best one, because, spirit, because Scripture interprets Scripture, these spirits are non-human spiritual beings, most likely a reference to the fallen angels that are mentioned in Genesis 6. And I, I say it because Peter talks about these same powers in verse 22. These fallen angels in Genesis 6, the so-called sons of God, disobeyed God. But not only that, they instigated humanity, the majority of humanity, to disobey God as well and to join in their rebellion. That's what prompted the flood. And so while God destroys all human life, all animal life, except for that on the ark, he did not destroy these, foreign, these fallen angels, yet he imprisoned them. And so, whereas no one in his family were saved, these angels are imprisoned. Now, what did Jesus preach to them? Not the gospel, because these are beyond hope of the gospel. He announced to them that he has emerged victorious over sin by his death on the cross. I remember in seminary, there was a student at a chapel who was invited to preach on this text. And I think... He, uh, he grew up in the Bronx, and he was what I would consider an, an all-classic Pentecostal preacher. And he it was this little guy, but when he preached, he was six foot eight. And he talked about this text, and he said, there was a party going on in hell. There was a party going on. Satan and his angels, they thought they had the Lord of life in their grasp. They were rejoicing. They had got the keys. There was a knock on the door. <laughs> Who's there? And the door burst open. And the king of glory marched in. And he took those keys. He locked them up. He gave us the victory. Well, you walk out of that meeting, you're like, okay, let's go. <laughs> he announces his victory. In the words of Paul, confirming the defeat of the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces in the heavenly places, all these are now subject to Jesus. Again, in the words of the Apostle Paul, because God has now highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the victory. That's the judgment. Now, the big question is, so what? Why does Peter say this? 
One word. Hope. We cannot live without hope. If you are going through a season of trial and suffering, if you are unemployed, if you are facing an illness, a chronic illness, if you are being bullied, if you are going through a time of serious testing of your faith, you need to have hope that that season will come to an end. Because if you have no hope that it will end, you, are, you have despair, you have depression, you have a crushing sorrow. So if Peter's readers are going through a season of trial and suffering and pain, their hope is bound up with the fact that Jesus Christ also has suffered and has overcome. We can't follow Jesus without hope. Remember, God has caused us to be born again, not to a dead hope, not to a future hope only, and not merely to a present hope, but to a living hope that sustains us in this life and brings us into the next. The essence of faith is trusting God in the present based on what he's done in the past so that we will continue to trust him for the future. Not just the future that awaits us on this earth, but the future that awaits us in heaven, the reward, the inheritance that is kept in heaven for us who are guarded by the power of Christ. We read about it in Ephesians, this deposit that is guaranteed to us through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. He wants to assure his readers, does Peter, that Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, that he lives and that he is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And that God put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's Ephesians 1, 20 to 23. It means that when Christ suffered for doing good, he suffered for our good. And that as God raised Christ from the dead, so he will raise all those who die and live trusting in Christ. That just as God saved Noah and his family from the evil and disobedient spirits of their present, of their day, he'll do the same. The church will always be a minority. We will always be outnumbered. The odds will always be against us. But take heart, says Peter. If God saved eight people and brought them safely through, he can save millions who have put their life in his hands and their destiny in his promise. So the resurrection of Christ guarantees for us our salvation, and it solidifies our victory. Baptism, Peter writes, which corresponds to this, meaning what Noah experienced in his family, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In Genesis 6, we know that God sent the flood to destroy the ancient world. The waters of that flood... I remember sitting in my Old Testament hermeneutics class 
and uh, Dr. Klein telling us the flood was the, the, the eschaton, if you will, the apocalypse of the ancient world. And at that point, I, it was only like 10 minutes into the class. I wanted to raise my hand and say, Dr. Klein, my brain is full. I've got to excuse myself. It just overwhelms me because that's exactly what happened. When God destroyed the world in Genesis 6 with the flood, that was its apocalypse so he could recreate a new world. It destroyed the old sinful world in Noah's day. It's comparable to baptism because as Christians, we believe that the waters of baptism represent the death of our old sinful way of life. The Apostle Paul says that everyone who is baptized is baptized into Christ, is baptized into his death. That we were buried with Christ by baptism in his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. It's Romans 6, 3 through 5. So again, just as Noah and his family were saved from the death-dealing waters of the flood by taking refuge in the ark, we are saved from the death-dealing waters of baptism by faith in Christ. Because if going under the water of baptism symbolizes death, we don't stay underwater. But we're raised. And baptism doesn't wash outwardly, but is the outward sign and seal of an inward work of the Holy Spirit that we have put our trust in Christ, that our old life goes under the waters of death and we are raised to newness of life through faith and trust in Christ, that Christ is himself the ark in which all those who hope to be saved and experience the resurrection into eternal life will find themselves. Our appeal to God, then, from a good conscience, is based entirely on our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The finished work of Christ gives us the confidence to confess our sins to God that he might cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which is what baptism represents. And then Peter closes his argument uh, with this encouragement. He says, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him. Let me paraphrase what he says here. And these are words that Peter himself would have heard and would be remembering as he goes through his own season of suffering. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus, and do not be afraid. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. He is seated at the right hand of God. He is Lord. He rules. And he reigns over the very powers that seek to destroy his church and to separate men and women from trusting in him. We will always be that minority. We will always face challenges and difficulties to trust Jesus. We will always be subject to temptation. And we will not always be faithful. But God's promise is that like he promised to Noah and his family, there is victory, there is hope, there is eternal life to be found through trusting in Christ. I mentioned before that one of the fundamental 
principles of Bible study, in addition to context is king, as scripture interprets scripture, that one part of the Bible can help us understand another part of the Bible. That's why I, I pepper my messages with references from scripture, because it just solidifies and builds. What you really have in 1 Peter 3.18 is, is a, an exposition not only of what Jesus says in John 14 through 17, but you also have a, a, an exposition of what uh, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says about Jesus. And I'm closing with this. Writing about Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way, one who in every way, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence. This is the best part of this text. Let us then with confidence, not fear of judgment from God, not fear of rejection from our Heavenly Father, not fear of being turned out by Him because we are weak, but with confidence, boldly, go to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace whenever we need it. You see, because as our great high priest, Jesus suffered for doing good, he can sympathize with our weaknesses because despite being tempted in every way as we are, he did not sin. That's the message of Good Friday. It's the message of Resurrection Sunday. Christ died for our sin. He rose for our justification. This is the gospel. Hell took a body and discovered God. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw and was overcome by what it did not see. Christ is risen and the tomb is emptied of its dead. For Christ, having risen from the dead, has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and power forever and ever. You think about that. Let's pray.